Good morning. My name is Rachel Joris. I'm the pastoral intern here at Bellmead, and it's good to be with you. Thanks for showing up on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, in addition to the work here I do at Bellmead, um, recently I became a certified candidate in the ordination process um, on the deacon track. And so it's a good milestone. There are many years left in the ordination process. It's not a process for the fainted heart. Um, but it's good to be able to do that work and that discernment here at Bellmead. So I appreciate that. Um, like was mentioned earlier, visitors, um, we would love to get to know you, so please do fill out that yellow card. And for those who are worshiping online, you are a valuable part of our community, and so we hope that we can connect with you in that space as well. Today we are wrapping up our November se sermon series called Joyful. We have been adventuring through stories of feasts, considering what it means to sow and reap sparingly or abundantly and praying prayers of partnership with our ministry. This has been our stewardship campaign, and so again, let me be the third person to say that card in your pew rack is still there for you to fill out if you have not done it before. Um, but really on a bigger glance, this has been a series, a time to take stock, to celebrate the ones who have come before us and honor their legacy of the work that they set in motion at this church, but also to celebrate the work that has been done and what we're doing and then also to look with anticipation about where we're going next year. So today's our passage is from Ephesians and holds some of those same themes about what is possible with God. Now, traditionally, the authorship of Ephesians is attributed to Paul, um, but that's questionable. Um, there's some debate about that. Um, scholars identify word choices or writing style and some theological stances that show up in this letter that aren't congruent with some of his other letters. Um, so it's possible that maybe he evolved through the course of his life, that's always possible, but more scholars believe that someone wrote this letter in his name, which was a pretty common thing to do at the time. And unlike some of the other letters that Paul wrote, um, this one is not written to a specific congregation about specific issues, but has a lot of general language about God's vision to unite the church under Christ. And I think it's important for us to remember that we, when we read the epistles, they are not one person writing to one person. It's one person writing to a group of people, a congregation or a region of people. It's really easy to make it really personal, like it's a, a personal correspondence, but we have to keep this larger context, a larger audience in mind. And so when we read at the beginning of our passage today, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. We need to read that in the plural, like it's y'all's faith and y'all's love. Probably that writer didn't say y'all, but that's how we can interpret it today. This is about a group identity. And like I said, there's this vision of uniting the church under Christ. And we see that in verses 18 and 19, where it said, the eyes of our hearts would be so enlightened so that we would know the hope that we are called to so we would know about the riches of the glorious inheritance, so that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power for all who believe. That is the author's vision of the church, and I think it is ours as well. To be people who see not just with their eyes, but with their hearts. To be people who look for that richness of God's presence and action in the world, to be people who can see not just through the chaos, but kind of above it, above the binaries that separate us, who have a hope that is deeper than chaos, 
and to be people who not just experience, but share that immeasurable greatness of God. Today is uh, on the liturgical calendar, Christ the King Sunday, or the Reign of Christ Sunday. It is the final Sunday of the liturgical year, and next week starts Advent, which is the first season of this calendar. And Christ the King Sunday is a time for us to celebrate the power of Christ and to really examine all of the things that we think about when we think of power, especially earthly power. And to most of us, the languages of kings or queens um, doesn't, maybe doesn't really resonate super well. That's not really inspiring to you, perhaps unless you really like British television or literature, or you like me, grew up with the Princess Diaries, and there's this chance that you might become a princess when you turn 16. Um, but other than that, like that, like that's not the reality we live in. Like we don't live under kings and queens. Um, so it's okay if that doesn't inspire you. Uh, but I did a little digging on the history of this feast day and found that Christ the King Sunday was first observed in 1925, and it was in response to World War I. It was Pope Pius XI that wanted to put in our calendar, in our way of life, this Sunday to remember that as Christians, our allegiance is only to heavenly, our heavenly ruler, not to all of the earthly rulers who want to convince us of their power. And I found this particularly grounding as I was reading that this week, that we still live in a time where there are lots of wars being waged around the world. Like we're constantly seeing great powers go up against each other to try to prove that they are the ones that deserve all of the control, no cost spared. And so this celebration of Christ the King calls us back to the truth that we need only to trust in God, that Jesus is the truest demonstration of power. The life of Christ showed us that confronting the empire does not necessitate violence, that we can be a threat to power without being violent. His entrance into Jerusalem was a triumphant one, but it was on a donkey. No military garb, no swords, no shields, no weapons of war. It was palm branches and cloaks on the ground. And so to celebrate Christ as king is to celebrate the one who chose the nonviolent way, the way of mercy, the way of justice, and the way of peace. I think verse 20 is especially poignant as we are asking and answering the question, so what is true power? Well, verse 20 says, God put this power to work when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in the heavenly places. So God used God's power to raise Jesus from the dead. God used God's power for resurrection. God used God's power to generate new life. True power is generating new life, and that power resides in us. And I think as we are considering power, it's easy to go to the big picture to think about global power, and I think that's important as we look at our world leaders or we think about voting or how policy affects pe people. But I think we can also scale it down into our interpersonal relationships. Like how is power at play with our coworkers or the people that we live with or our friends? This might feel especially fresh as we just had Thanksgiving and a lot of us gathered with our families 
and maybe that was lovely and wonderful, and maybe that was a demonstration of like some unhealthy power dynamics, and like it was a little tense, and we can feel that. Um, but either way, I think it begs the question of like, where where is the power in the relationships? Are we constantly trying to control the people that we are around and that we have relationships with, or is our presence life-giving? I think this has been an undercurrent in our sermon series this month of like, what are the kinds of people we want to be? We want to be generous. We want to be abundant. We want to believe in hope and joy. We want to be celebratory and engaged in the work that we're doing. And so I think this, this passage also gives us another question. Do we want to be the kind of church who puts our power toward acts of life? How do we then understand our public witness in the world? Is it about simply extending our power or sharing it? Are we willing to offer our power to those who have often been rendered powerless? And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, I hope you go back and listen to it because there's this, Sam shares this really robust list of things that have been going on, things that have been happening in our church thanks to you all who show up and serve and make space and promote equity and like do the work of sharing power and generating life in this community and there's more to do and we're excited about where we're going. This Thanksgiving, my husband Cody and I drove to Indiana. That's where most of my family lives. And so we had a good six hours in the car each way. Um, lots of time to um, listen to music and podcasts and kind of switch back and forth. It's an act of sharing power of like who chooses what we listen to. And um, one of the podcasts we like to listen to is called Kelly Corrigan Wonders by host Kelly Corrigan. And she does a few different um, shows in her podcast stream. And one of them we listened to was a 10-part series. We listened to one of them. Um, it was a 10-part series on the question, what does it take to make it in America? And this particular episode we listened to, she was talking to Matthew Desmond. He is a Harvard-trained sociologist and works at Princeton currently and um, is the writer of two books. He wrote um, the book called Evicted um, several years ago. It won the Pulitzer Prize. And in that book, he tells the story of eight different families in the city of Milwaukee. Some of those families were... Um, Landowner, landlords, property managers, and some of them are tenants. And he uses those stories in that city to illuminate the interconnectedness of housing and poverty and just how easy it is to slip into poverty and homelessness in America. Um, his most recent book came out earlier this year. It's called Poverty by America. And it asks the question, why does the U.S., the richest country in the world, have more poverty than any other advanced democracy. And he posits that poverty exists because the rest of us benefit from it. And so in this conversation, they're talking a lot about solutions and why they think that is the reality and what can be done about it. They talk about tax structures and legislation and policy. They talk about like how exhausting it is to be poor, like everything is harder, everything hurts more. They talk about how it's more socially acceptable to talk about mental illness than it is to be broke. And they talk about how so many people in our country are like one event away from being in poverty. It's like one car accident, one divorce, one injury, one layoff away from precarity. Like so many people live in that precarious situation. 
And the thing that was most striking to me about this conversation was not just the solutions, because Matthew Desmond like has some ideas and they, they might work, um, but the thing that was really grounding in that conversation was it will only work if we love people. Like there are solutions out there, there are things that we can do, none of it will happen if we don't choose to love people. And not just in a kind of general way, like oh, I generally like people, but like we have to choose to love people in order to do the things that will save them from poverty. And I think that is, that is the message behind all of the sermon series that we've been going through. Like that's what we're saying when we say, be a cheerful giver. Be a cheerful giver because you love God and you love this church and you want to love people outside of this church. When we talk about the cup can be half full or half empty, or we're gonna to choose to believe that it can overflow for everyone. That is choosing love for everyone. When we talk about the being activated by the spirit and having that energy to keep our foot on the gas, like that is the power of love and action. When we think about channeling the love of Christ and generating new life, like we're choosing love, we're choosing the power of love to change the world. Next week, we embark on the season of Advent, and it is the season when we prepare our hearts, we anticipate the arrival of Christ, we try to get ourselves quiet in this season, the days are getting darker, and so we're looking for those glimpses of light, like physically and spiritually. And there's just a lot of buildup and a lot of anticipation, and we're also thinking about these themes of hope and peace and love and joy. And those are not just decorative words that we put on throw pillows or on signs. Like Those are like spiritual practices in this season. They are cozy and they're aspirational, but they're like choices that we make to order our world around. And so when it seems like the world is in utter chaos and engulfed in violence, we will choose peace. When it seems like the world has a thick layer of despair over it, we choose hope. When it seems easier to be isolated and disconnected, we choose joy. When it seems a heck of a lot easier to just not care, to be apathetic and disengaged, we choose to love. And when we are tempted with these promises of power from earthly leaders, we choose Christ. We choose Christ. We choose the Christ that was smuggled into this world through the body of a brown-skinned teenage girl. We choose the Christ that instead of exploiting equality with God, emptied himself of it and became like us. We choose a Christ who opted into the human condition. We choose the Christ who chose the donkey, not the military parade. We choose the Christ who chooses love above all else. So on this Christ the King Sunday, on our conclusion of our stewardship campaign in this joyful series and anticipation of Advent, may we honor the power of Christ with signs of life. May we give joyfully and with deep love for our neighbor. May we keep the eyes of our hearts open as we prepare to receive the Christ child once again. May it be so.